Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Really glad to have y'all here today as we continue our Roman series, and if you're joining us online, um, we're glad you're here too. I want to talk about something I think we can all relate to, um, or something that maybe, maybe you've never considered before, but as I talk about it, I think you're going to believe me. So if I had to ask you, say we were in class or something, what's the number one reason why people don't go exercise or work out more? What's, what's the thing that is the most difficult? I think we would probably all agree number one is time. You know, we just, there's not enough time. Uh, number two, we might say that uh, it's something that's just uh, takes a lot of dedication and, and commitment to it. And with all of the stuff we've got going on and with uh, different expectations of, of I've got to do this for work and I've got to do this at home. There's just not enough room to stay committed to it. And so you might have your time where you're like, you know what, I'm going to do it. Uh, and Monday, Tuesday, you're in, but by Saturday you haven't stayed committed. And so for the next week, it's just kind of like, okay, I, I can't stick with this. All right, we, I agree with those. But here is one of the number one reasons that I don't think anybody talks about. I believe that one of the number one reasons why people don't exercise is because they don't feel like they belong in the exercise community. So let me give you an example. If you're like, you know what, I need to go start jogging, and you go out there and you're out there running and people drive by. I've been there before where I've thought everybody who just saw me as I was jogging is like, that person is not a runner. Or that person is not like actually a jogger because I just don't have the form or, you know, it's like, what is this person doing out here? Or the better example is when you go to the gym and by the way, I, I, I am someone who does exercise. You can tell when you see somebody in the gym who does not exercise. It's usually because they sit down at the machine or whatever that's meant where you're supposed to go like this and they're like, you know, doing, they're, they're kind of, and you're like, oh, okay, you, you kind of, you clearly don't really know what that's for. Or they're trying to do, and, and I'm sure, you know, I see Sammy in the gym all the time, and one thing I think is, I bet you that the number of times he sees somebody doing an exercise where he's like, oh man, that is not good for your back, that's not good for your legs, or, but what happens is people, they come in, and they see all these people with their their, you know, their workout clothes and their, their, got their headphones on, doing their thing, and they just think, everybody can tell that I'm a fraud. Like, I do not know what I'm doing in here. I don't belong in here. Look at me. I, I, why, why am I in here? And yet, isn't, isn't that ironic that the people who maybe are the most out of shape are the ones that ought to feel like they belong in the gym the most? You know what I mean? It's the people who are cut and jacked that are like, oh yeah, this is my place. You know, and yet the people that need to be at the gym the most are the ones that are like, I, I just, I don't fit in here. I don't belong here. There actually was a gym I read about one time that was specific. I can't remember what it was called, but I, I want to say it was called like uh, star lifting and it was all a Star Wars theme weight room and it was trying to attract nerdy people. And the idea was a lot of nerdy people don't feel like they can go to the gym and it's like, hey, you come on to this gym. You belong here. Okay. And you know, Last point, you know, a lot of people will even, what they'll do is before they go work out, they'll go buy like a, a matching workout uniform. You know what I mean? Like they'll go buy the, the pants and they'll invest 50, 100 bucks in, in workout stuff because they think, 
once I show up dressed like this, they'll be, oh yeah, they belong. You know, they're, they must work out. Look at that. Look at their, their clothes or whatever. And then what do they do? They work out for a week and then they never use those clothes again to work out. But they, they got that for Christmas and so they were going to try it out, right? You, you know what I'm saying? But you get this feeling committing to exercising takes so much, so much effort that just even the slightest feeling of I don't really belong here is enough motivation for people to be like, I'm not going to keep up with this. I can't, I can't keep paying this, this bill to go to this workout place and everyone's just looking at me like in my khaki cargo shorts and in my, and I just, I don't belong here, okay? Um, I want you to know the place for me where I feel the most, like I tell Catherine, get me out of here. I, I wonder what you're going to think I'm going to say. What do, you, what do you think? The number one place where I walk into and I'm like, I just don't belong here. The mall. That's it. I do not shop for stuff. I, I tell Catherine, if I need a pair of jeans, I know exactly my size. I'm going to go. I'm going to look at the prices. I'm maybe going to try them on because I'd rather not drive back, but I'm going to buy those jeans. There's no shopping going on. But the number one reason why is because I think everybody can tell I'm a fraud. If I were to go into a store or a mall and like look around, they would look at the way I dress. They would look at the way I'm acting and just be like, What's this guy doing here? And I feel that immensely. I hate going into shopping stores because I feel this overwhelming sense of, like, they can all tell, like, I have no idea what kind of, like, clothes I should buy or what matches or what works. And you may think this sounds ridiculous, but I don't like going because I feel like they can all smell I do not belong at a mall, okay? They can all sense it. Oh, here comes this guy who's going to try and, you know, buy some clothes and coordinate, but he doesn't even know what, his, what kind of clothes size he wears. And thank goodness Catherine buys my clothes for me most of the time, you know what I mean? But yeah, anyway, that's a place where I don't belong. And I, I'm saying all this to say each and every one of us at a different time or another we have wanted to be a part of something, and we've immediately felt from the, the place we were at, you don't belong here, and we've immediately wanted to leave. You've been invited, maybe you've invited to a, a, a birthday party when you were a kid, and all the other kids had all the same matching shoes or all the same backpack, and you're like, I don't belong in this crowd. And you, you, you wanted to be a part of it, but you had to leave. Or you've, you've gone to a church before because you've moved towns and you've gone to visit. And as soon as you walked in, whether it's because you, what you were wearing wasn't nice enough or wasn't, was too nice, you walked in and you felt like, I do not belong here. And you thought, I don't know if I could see myself in this church. By the way, I want to compliment this congregation because from the moment I've come here, every person that I hear who says, well, I started coming here because the second I showed up, people greeted me and made me feel welcome. That's the number one thing I hear. People came up to me and I went to this, I visited this church or this church and you know some people said hi, but here like people really like mobbed me and made me feel welcome, okay? And uh, in a good way, you know, loving mob. Um, but what I want you to think about, and it's something you're going to see as we keep reading, is this idea of belonging is going to be really important to this chapter. And so what we've done is we've read Romans 1, 2, and 3, and now we're going to read 4. And what you're supposed to remember from last week's sermon, if you weren't here, is Paul has really just laid the groundwork where he said, there is no way that you can boast at all in what you're doing in this life. Because if you think you can boast about something, like look how good I am, look how well I follow the law, look how good of a life I live, you're thinking you're wrong because you're starting to think those things are the things that make you right with God. And there's no room for boasting because it is only your faith in Christ that makes you right with God. And so let's turn, if you have your scripture journal, or if you want to follow along on the screen, this is Romans 4. And I'm, I'm not going to pause as often, I hope, but it is quite a bit of reading. Um, but I've said this before, 
Uh, I think a lot of preachers might tell me that I'm going to lose my audience by reading such a long section of text. They're like, man, you gotta, people are going to zone out. And uh, you're right, some people might. But I think in the long run, you'll be glad that we read all of Romans. And I think you'll be glad in the long run that you get to be someone who says, you know what, we actually get into the text. And, uh, and so, yes, I hope, I hope I don't lose you, but I might. Um, but we're going to read this whole chapter, um, and, and I'll stop and pause as we go. So we just got done talking about boasting, and we're, we're, we can't boast at all because of the fact that none of our works have led to our righteousness, but only our faith in Christ. So Paul says, what then shall we say? He does this throughout Romans. What, sh- what shall we say then? Like he's already imagining the argument that someone's going to make. That Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter. What did, what did Abraham discover about all of this? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. So if Abraham was justified because of what he did, then he could boast. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. His point is, if somebody actually goes and does a job and you get paid for it, that's not a gift. That's not a credit. That's something you earned. You did that work. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. So he's saying, if your works don't really add up to your righteousness, then everything that God is giving you is something that is credited to you, not because you've earned it, but because God's decided to give it to you. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. I want to point out to you, Paul is still kind of talking to this, these Jewish Christians and Jewish people who are saying, listen, I'm, I am made righteous because I'm a child of Abraham. Or I am made righteous because I am a part of God's people. And how cool is it that what Paul is doing is so brilliant is he's using two of the Jewish people's greatest heroes. He's using Abraham and now he's using David to make his point. They would say, well, Abraham makes our point. And Paul's like, no, no, no. Abraham makes my point. And David makes my point too, King David. David says in the Psalms, blessed are those who tra- whose transgressions are forgiven. It doesn't say blessed are those who do not sin whose sins are covered over. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is it blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. What he's doing is he's saying, okay, you think that the reason that Abraham is righteous is because he was circumcised as a part of God's covenant people. And what Paul is saying, no, 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 read your Bibles. In Genesis 15, it says God made a covenant with Abraham and declared him to be righteous based on his faithfulness. And then two chapters later is when Abraham got circumcised. Does that make sense? For Paul, he's saying he became faithful and was faithful to God and God was faithful to him before the circumcision, even though you Jewish Christians are claiming, oh, no, no, the circumcision is the thing that declares whether or not you are righteous. Let me make sure I'm where I'm at. Uh, okay, here I am. And he received the circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, 
but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. So they're saying, listen, you Jews, you say that Abraham is your father by biology and genetics and circumcision. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. He is not just the father of them, but he is the father of anyone who has faith. Let me make sure I'm at the right spot. Okay. Uh, And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's saying, listen, he's also the father of the Jews, but only if you're, not because you're circumcised, but because you follow in the footsteps of faith. It is not... It is not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. If you depend on following all the rules to be declared an heir, then there's no need for the faith because you've got the rules, you've got following that. Because the law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. I want to make sure I mention, if you think Paul is saying that the law is bad, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, well, if you follow the law, the law is bad. No, Jesus said he came to fulfill the law. What we need to see it is he's saying the law is a good thing that God gave us. But if you're finding your dependency and your trust on your salvation in the law, then you're never going to get it from that. Having the law is good. Counting it as the dependence of your rightness with God is a problem. Uh, a way I heard a, a speaker describe it where it says this, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. If a kid decided to go and steal another kid's lunch, but he didn't know that that was a bad thing to do, he still did a bad thing, right? But he didn't knowingly do a bad thing. But if a parent or a teacher says, do not take another kid's lunch, and then they go and do it anyway, that's where there's transgression. That they knowingly did something And they knew it was wrong, and they still decided to do it. And that's part of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, these rules that you were given, it almost makes you even more guilty because you knew you weren't supposed to to live this way. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. I love love this idea, and we often just maybe throw this aside of, yeah, God called him to be the father of all nations, but this is something that is so crucial in Romans and in this chapter. If you miss it, you're missing a lot of the point. Paul is trying to bring these two groups together, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And he's saying, whenever you two come together as one people, you are fulfilling the promise that God made to Abraham. Because God made a promise that all nations would come together. And when you stay separate from each other, you're denying that promise that God made, that you would be the father of many nations. And then I also love this part where it says, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. He's making, he's, he's making you think of two things. You're probably, when you hear the phrase, the God who gives life to the dead, you should think of Jesus, right? But he's also hinting at Abraham and Sarah, and he's about to talk about it. Because Abraham and Sarah were people that God promised he would bring things into being that were not, which was the promise of a child that would come, even though Abraham and Sarah were so old. So here we go. He's going to go into that story. Against all hope, 
that phrase, against all hope, uh, yeah, they, you know, uh, the Allied forces defeated Germany against all hope. That phrase started here with Paul. He's saying, despite everything that you saw, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, I want you, if you're a note taker, I want you to put a question mark by that. We'll come back. He faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. I want you to put a question mark by that too if you're a note taker. We're going to come back to it. But was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So he uses this story of God making this promise to Abraham to say, Abraham was declared right before God, not when he got circumcised, but when he chose to hear the promise of God and to say, I'm going to trust and have faith in that. That's when he became the, uh, was made righteous, credited as righteous before God. And so the first thing I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about two main things, is I want to say part of what Paul is doing is he is showing Abraham as a case study for faithfulness. And it's such good news for the Christians because the Jewish Christians are saying, yeah, that's right, let's use Abraham as a, as a case study because he follows everything that they thought was what made you righteous. And Paul is saying, no, 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 let me tell you why he's a case study. Abraham was a pagan, and God came to him and made a promise to him, and he decided to put his faith in him before he was circumcised. Here are a few other ways in which Abraham is a, a case study. We have this scripture... Uh, uh, what, it is, what does it mean for Paul to put his, or for Abraham to put his faith in God? One thing that it means is to look beyond appearances and feelings. In verse 18, it says, Against all hope, Abraham saw his life stage and her life stage and was like, There's no way that this is going to happen. And this is part of what it means to be someone who has faith. It means to look at our circumstances and not go, You know what? I think this is going to go pretty good. It's not about necessarily having a better optimism, but it's about choosing to say, I'm going to have faith. Uh, Kel Tim Keller has this great quote that I really like. Let me make sure it's here. Um, <clears throat> make sure I find it. Faith is not simply an optimism about life in general. It is the opposite. Faith begins with a kind of death to self-trust. Faith is going on something despite our weakness, despite our feelings and perceptions. That is what it looks like, and that's what Abraham showed. And we can all relate to this. We've all at times in our life said, you know what, God, I'm putting my faith and trust in you, even despite the fact that it does not look like things are going that way. Every single time you walk through the valley in your life, all the appearances, everything you see is telling you, this will not work out. But choosing to say, I have faith that I'm going to be a part of God's promises and I'm going to be made righteous despite this is, is what faith really is, not going, eh, it'll all work out. You know what I mean? You hear what I'm saying? Okay, another example. What, something that Abraham did as an example of what does it mean to put our faith in God. He focused on the facts about God. In verse 20 and 21, he says, He did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Part of what you're supposed to think is he's saying, 
for me, it's ridiculous for me to believe that God's going to bring a child through us. But at the same time, this same God who created the world, who hung the stars in the sky, who told the sun what to do, who created all of this, how can I not think that if this is the God I know, that he's capable of being faithful in these other things? And then lastly, for Abraham to, to put his faith in God means to trust in the promises of God. In, in verse 21, the one we just read, he said, he, uh, verse 21 right here, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham believed God, and he, it wasn't just simply thinking about, okay, I'm going to think about God. Uh, okay, he seems like a nice guy. I think I'll follow him. It is taking God at his word, and he, it's saying, even when there is nothing else to go on, even when I don't have anything else, I'm going to just say, God made this promise, and I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to read some, a quote real quick, but before I do, there's one other thing that is good news for me as Abraham as a case study. Remember I told you all to put question marks earlier? Okay. In verse 19, it says, without weakening in his faith. In verse 20, it says, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God. How many of you have actually read the Abraham story? Anybody actually read it? He sure seems to waver to me, right? A lot. He, God promises that him and Sarah are going to have a child. And they are so faithful to that promise that he decides to say, or his wife says, you know what? Go ahead and sleep with my maidservant. Have a child through her. He can be the offspring of the family. Does that sound like faithfulness and trust? No, it doesn't. Or how about the time when Abraham is around the, the Pharaoh of Egypt? He's there and he's worried because his wife is so attractive. I can understand what this is like. He's worried that the Pharaoh is going to kill him to steal his wife. Okay? This is what I think every time I drive through Dallas. I'm just like, I got to shut the windows so that... Yeah. Okay. The idea, though, is what does he do? He doesn't say, you know what? God made me a promise. He doesn't say, God said he's going to have an offspring through me, so I'm just going to trust. What does he do? He says that Sarah is his sister. Right? So a, the Pharaoh takes Sarah to be his wife, and then all of a sudden all this bad stuff starts happening to Pharaoh because God said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And Pharaoh's like... What did you do to me, Abraham? Why did you lie to me? All this bad stuff started happening to me. And he sends her away. And that happens twice. That doesn't just happen once. Okay. So the reason why this is such good for news for me that Paul decided to use Abraham as a, as a case study, well, one thing is, it's a classic example of preachers being okay with kind of stretching things a little bit to make their point. All right. I've, I've done that before. But what it's a better example of is the fact that Abraham, we know that even though he didn't always live out his faith. He didn't always, his trust clearly seemed to fluctuate. But his faith, according to Paul, was never extinguished. And that's good news for me. Because I can tell you there's a number of times where I've done things that do not look like I'm putting my faith in Christ. That do not look like my trust is solely and completely on God. And yet I still get to be a part of someone who says, I have faith in God, even when it wavers. That's good news for us. Because if you're sitting here saying, well, my faith never wavers, I'll, I'll call it out because I just can't buy that. But even Abraham was still counted as righteous because of his faithfulness, despite the fact that his faith would waver. Here's a great uh, way that, um, another good quote of, of why Abraham is a, a great case study. There was no hope for Abraham and Sarah except the hope of God's promises. And that was all the hope they needed. We have no hope of eternal life when we attend funerals, when we sit in hospitals and we look at what's happening. We have no hope of eternal life, except that God promised that in Christ 
we can be made righteous and we can have new life. We can face the loss of things we enjoy and grieve when those we love are taken away, yet not lose hope or feel that life isn't worth living. The person who believes God can face anything and say, I still have the promises and that is enough. If you want to write something down, that's worth writing down. I still have the promises and that's enough to have faith and to hold on to it. The next thing, and this is where I, bring, I come back around to what I started at the beginning, but the ultimate question that Paul is trying to answer in this chapter, in my opinion, is he is saying, okay, you Jewish Christians, here's what I know you're about to ask. You're about to ask, wait a second, Paul, you're telling me that our works and our circumcision and our biology of being a descendant of Abraham, you're telling me that's not what makes us righteous? Well, then who gets to be a part of this covenant family if that's not what it is? And so you can argue, you can say, well, what means you belong in a weight room? Is it that you wear the right clothes? Is it that you know how to use all the machines just right? Is it that you're the strongest? Is it that you have all the perfect form and you're committed, you're there every day? You're the person that's there at 5 a.m. rather than, you know, you never miss. That's what makes you belong. And that's what the Jewish Christians are saying. They're like, Paul, all these things that we've described as making you belong, are you telling us that's not what makes us belong anymore? Paul says now that God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. And he declared Abraham righteous, not because of his circumcision, but because of his faith before the law was ever given. And so he is saying, yes, you are a part of the covenant family if you are a child of Abraham. But that is not biological. That is not about your badge. That is not about whether you keep everything just right. You are a child of Abraham and a part of the covenant family if you have faith in Christ. Not whether you have the strongest faith, not whether you have the best faith. I said it last week. We are not saved by how good of faith we have. We are saved by whether we have faith in Christ. And if you have faith in Christ, for Paul, you are a, ch a child of Abraham, a child of faith, and you are a part of God's multi-ethnic world, God's multi-ethnic community. And so here's the thing that I think is so crucial for us, that's so important, is Paul just got done saying two things that are very important, and it's still important for us today. He said, you're trying to figure out whether these Gentile Christians are allowed into the family. And some of you are saying, well, they need to get circumcised first. Well, they need to follow the law first. And Paul is saying, nope, you don't need to do those things. And by the way, just because you've done all those things, that doesn't mean you're a part of the family either. You're a part of the family if you have faith in Christ. And so here's the invitation to all of us. You ready? We sometimes... Churches all over the world for all time have sometimes made a, a thing where when people decide to come be a part of the community, whether it's in a building or in someone's home or out in a field under a tree, they've said to the people coming in, you've got to do certain things to belong here. You've got to not do certain things to belong here. You've got to wear certain clothes to belong here. You've got to not talk certain ways to belong here. You've got to be a part of certain groups and spheres and families. Y'all get what I'm saying? Okay? We've done that before. We've made people feel like they've got to look and sound and be like us to belong in the covenant family of God. And Paul is saying, get all of that out of here. There is nothing. The church today and in every generation must make sure the door is wide enough and open to let every person in from every ethnic group from every type of family, from every part of the world, from every sort of moral or immoral background. Remember me saying, people in the weight room, they come in and they think, oh man, I don't belong here because I'm not fit. 
That's a problem because the weight room is for people to get fit. If we do the same thing where we say, oh, well, you're kind of an immoral, bad person. You, you've got to become a perfect person before you can come in here. We've missed it. This is where you come. This is where all of us admit to ourselves, we can't boast about anything. Our moralness doesn't make us fit in here. It's the fact that we have faith in Christ that makes us belong here. But, so that's the one hand, we must make the door as wide open as possible. But we also must make sure that our defining characteristic of membership into this family, not just this family, Clifton family, but this capital C, Church, Body of Christ family, has to be firmly stated and adhered to. The faith that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. That is the thing that makes you part of the family. Nothing else. Keeping this in balance is something that we will always have to struggle with. When I'm dead and 300 years from now, there's a church somewhere, if, if that's still going on, that church will have the exact same problems. How do we decide who gets in and how do we decide who isn't in? And the key isn't all the things that we normally make it. The key is, do you have faith in Christ? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you admitted to yourself that there is nothing I do to deserve to be a part of this covenant community except that the fact that God died on the cross and gave this grace and this gift to me to say, I am going to make sure you are right so that we can all be a part of this community and this family. And if you put your faith in him. And that's an invitation that you're invited to every day. Whether you've decided to get baptized or not, every single one of us is invited now and tomorrow morning and in a week from now to say, am I going to be someone who puts my faith in Christ? And that means we're a part of the community and the family of God and the promises of God. If any of you have any prayer requests, I'd encourage you to come as we stand and sing.